0: G'day, I'm Oli Laleve and welcome to GRDC in Conversation. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're covering Southern Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates, and just about everyone in between. Today I'm sitting down with Kate Burke and she's a familiar name for many in grain growing circles. Her working career has seen her in a variety of roles as an agronomist, commercial manager, a serial chemist, which you'll have to keep listening to find out what that's about. And today she's running her own farm consultancy business, leaning on her decades of experience, including a PhD in agronomy. More recently, Kate founded Think Agri, her own consulting business, after identifying a need for corporate and institutional investors to have access to astute experience-based advice when considering key agri-investment decisions, when she knows the right questions to ask and when. She's even added the title of author to a list of accolades with her first book, Crops, People, Money and You, The Art of Excellent Farming. Enjoy the chat. Kate Burke, it's it's fantastic to sit down with you. We were chatting just before, that you gave me a few weeks of work experience back in 2014, so it's great to see you again.
1: Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it Ollie? It's um, eight years ago, how time flies when you're having fun.
0: A little bit further away from the CBD of Melbourne, whereabouts are you these days and what are you up to?
1: Uh, living in Echuca, living the dream, working for myself, practice called Think Agri, uh, doing some boutique advisory work and quite a lot of speaking and communication work. Yeah,
0: awesome. Tell me, what is Think Agri doing?
1: So I think agri, what I like to do, I suppose my passion is um, helping farmers be better, making better farmers, better farms and a better future for agriculture. So what that means in reality is communication products. I recently wrote a book on um, what I think are the fundamentals of making money in the long term and being happy in agriculture. So it's called Crops, People, Money and You, The Art of Excellent Farming and Better Returns. And we do a subscription newsletter slash audio product focusing from sort of one to many there, I suppose. People tell me that, you know, I've got a bit of experience and expertise on the practical level after 30 years. So I'm trying to to um, help people who are happy to capture that and then still doing a bit of one-on-one really on the business and strategy side and trying to tackle those Problems that tend to get shoved in the bottom drawer. So, what would you say your passion is these days? My passion's still people and the countryside. Like I, I just love nothing more than than communicating in novel ways and being around people and having fun, but making their lives better. And I love people. I love farming, and I love money, and I'm not afraid to say that money's a good thing. And I just see there's still so many uncaptured opportunities that are sitting right under people's noses. So well, I'm more than happy to help them have a crack at getting it.
0: It's an interesting thing and I'm very much looking forward to this podcast because that bit around money, it can be an uncomfortable conversation, but at the end of the day, it's what allows you to then explore your passions or your, create opportunities for yourself. So we're going to come back to that. But this passion for agriculture, you're a farm girl. Where did you grow up?
1: So I grew up, In Elmore, which is uh, 200 k's north of Melbourne, or a bit less than 200 actually, and 100 miles in the old language. We had a family farm there. Both sides of Dad's family have been in the area since the 1870s, or in fact a little bit earlier than that. So the farm my brother's run now, part of that farm's been in the family for 152 years. And I was the youngest of six kids. Farm life was a lot of what we did. Mum, was, um, mum went back to work. She was a nurse, so you know, doing shift work and things. My siblings are a bit older than me, so I spent a lot of time with Dad as a kid and with my brothers as, as well. So a lot of time out in the, uh, you know, I guess, in the school of the farm.
0: A big wild world. Tell me, was, was a career as a farmer ever on the horizon for you?
1: No. I suppose when you think about it, in the in growing up in the 70s and the 80s, you know I couldn't have named a female farmer, and I don't think it occurred to Mum and Dad that that would be a choice. And already they were grappling with five kids, six kids, four of whom were boys, and probably would have all loved to have gone farming, and not all of them got that opportunity. So. And I think also the age gap, so these 11 years between my oldest brother and myself, actually it might be 12. Um, so the succession stuff for, you know, who was working on the farm and how all that was going on, that was happening when I was still, you know, a kid.
0: Was agriculture always a passion or, or did you start to get pushed down other avenues and and thought, oh, maybe, Kate, you should go and look at this area?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Agricultural science was actually sown as a seed when I was in primary school, believe it or not, by my grandmother, city-based grandmother, she said, oh, you should do agricultural science. I didn't even know that was a thing. She obviously did. And there was a local bloke who was an ag scientist, a guy called Frank Nile, and he was one of the inventors of Avid BW, the wild oak killer, pre-emergent wild oak killer. So we did have an awareness about ag science. My other passion that I was interested in, I was interested in veterinary a while. I was told by teachers to get interested in medicine, but like a hell of a lot of hard work. Got quite interested in physio, actually. My brother, my oldest brother had a tractor accident when I was 11 and a very serious accident. And part of being a a teenager in our house was being around helping care for him as he recovered from that accident. And um, I used to help him with his physio, and I remember going to the gym with him in Melbourne uh, to get some help, and so I was quite interested in that, and I was always mad keen on sport. So I had this idea at one stage of being the sports physio for the Australian cricket team. Yeah, I aiming mean, mean low there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And so it really did, you know, I had both ag and physio as my sort of choices and aims, but Probably wasn't focused enough in year 12 to quite crack the marks for physio if I'm perfectly honest.
0: Well, there's like a few of us that might have done the same with VET but uh, yeah.
1: yeah,
0: aspirations and reality can come crashing down.
1: Yeah, it's very social time when you're uh, 17, 18, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. There's something beautiful about the bush too in terms of that correlation between farming or agriculture and also sport. It's, it it really does, it's what creates the community in, in these areas.
1: Oh, it, it is and you know i've got fond memories just being on the farm picking up sticks with dad in the paddock listening to footy on saturday afternoons and then as you get older going to watch the siblings play sport and all coming back to the car at half time of the reserves to have your sausages that in foil that you know mum had cooked before you went to the footy <laughs> and and just being absolutely in admiration of the senior players footy players and netballers and you know i don't think People in communities, probably when you're in your 20s, you don't realise all these kids just think you're the bee's knees.
0: Yeah, and even I think for those kids coming through, not just kind of the little tuckers that are in the club rooms, it's, it's everyone right through that really look up to these people who are leaders in the community.
1: Yeah, you, that's right. A friend of mine said once that, um, well, netball clubs are, the cheapest form of social work and the most underrated community service in town. And if you're not into sport, sometimes you can judge footy and netball clubs in a different light. When you're in them, you just realise how important they are for the community.
0: They're they're there through thick and thin. Tell me, coming coming back, you mentioned your dad a few times. So key influences, I'm, I'm guessing your dad was one of them. Choosing his career to go down agriculture... And ag science and agronomy, and I'm sure we're going to unlock a whole bunch of different things. That whether both on the study side of what you've done, who were the key influences for you when it came to choosing a career in agriculture?
1: It's interesting. Teachers tried to talk me out of it, which I find fascinating. And I, I reckon I've got a bit of oppositional defiance disorder. So I was like, Mm-mm, if you're saying don't do it, I'm probably going to do it.
0: <laughs> Thirty years later, and yeah. <laughs>
1: And back in our day, your parents probably didn't have as much direct influence on your career, I think, as they might now, particularly when coming from families that, you know, weren't, um, say, urban-based professionals. So Dad being a farmer, obviously, you know, that, that was um, stoked the passion and I loved being out on the farm with Dad and involved um, in particularly with the sheep work and, and things like that. Mum was a nurse. My sister was a teacher and so again, oppositional defiance was like, right, I don't want to be a teacher and I don't want to be a nurse. <laughs> so that was the first two out and I was pretty good at science and you know, not too bad at English. So I was, I was lucky that I sort of had both sides of the brain going. So a couple of science teachers were pretty influential. This Scottish teacher, Mr Donnelly, I did his, the first ever computer class at the school in the uh, 80s. So we were sitting there, with these little Vic 20s, I think they were called.
0: Pretty quick compared to computers we're running these days, are yeah. they? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. They, were, they were amazing machines. But he said to me, I sat down having a career conversation, and he said, Probably the first time I realised that I was academically okay, which is ridiculous when you've got reasonable marks all through school, but you don't actually, it doesn't occur to you that you're smart. And he said, Catherine, you can be a doctor, you can be anything. And I went, Oh, Right, okay, so I've got a bit of choice here. So, yeah, it never occurred to me that there was lots of choice out there for, for someone like me, so that was pretty cool.
0: And you chose agriculture, which is pretty exciting.
1: Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. I, you put down all sorts of things on your preference forms, don't you? I had forestry and dentistry and, yeah, obviously medicine and vet and physio and all those aspirational things. And um, bit of, I think I had, I was interested in earth science and geology Once I had metallurgy and look back now, like obviously I didn't have a very commercial brain back then because otherwise I would have gone into mining. (laughs) So, so yeah, mad keen on ag. The other thing about, and it was quite common, I think if you spoke to a lot of ag science graduates that are in their early to mid-50s now, they'd talk about the famine in Africa in the early 80s and the live aid concerts. And the influence of people like Bob Geldof who were raising money for the starving people in Africa and just the drought in Ethiopia. And and I remember thinking then, you know, I want to go to Africa and do something. And was, when I speak to some of my mates that grew up in the city, why would you do ag science? And it's because oh, I wanted to help feed the world. So that, that has always been a bit of a passion.
0: It's an aspirational thing, isn't it? And this is its something that I personally grapple with. So this is reaching out to you for some advice now. Now, in terms of this piece and, and the role that agriculture plays, 40% of the world's population, so 40% of whatever 7 billion is, are working in agriculture every day. It's people who are some of the most affluent in Australia, but also globally are directly involved in agriculture, but so so are the poorest people. Like it is, there's something incredibly special about this industry, but also there's a lot of challenges in front of us. How did you balance that kind of need to, to create and build a career juggle those global aspirations.
1: It's interesting. So I still haven't done any development work yet. It's actually is probably the last thing on the bucket list, you know, that's been with my career all the way. I thought, oh, I probably should tick that box. I suppose I I've I have am one of those people, going back to me, I guess, in my career pathway, I was never a goal setter when I was younger. I just have a bit of a feeling, well, I think I want to get, you know, had a decision to make sort of the health field or agriculture and science will go in agriculture itself once I was at uni and quite, was quite interested in all the different things, but I did stick to what I know and started to head down the cropping or mixed broadacre field. I was still quite interested in sheep at the time, interested in communication and extension so I just kept nosing my career along, I suppose. Ended up in research, for starters, not so much the communication and extension side. But I just, I always feel all the way through to now, 32 years later, it was May 1990, my first job, I feel like I've just been like, you know, that the dolphin with the ball in front of them, just nosing the ball along. And I guess my advice to anyone now you know yourself, Ollie, or those even younger than you, is that if you've got a passion for something and a vague interest in something, it will work out. Like you don't have to have this defined pathway. And opportunities pop up. And I gave a talk to a group of students on O Week once at on Long College, and I, you know, I said to them, "Hands up, you know what? Do you, hands up, who doesn't know what they want to do when they grow up?" and um, yeah, and I put my hand up and <laughs> I was still working it out and that was just before I went to Warakiri actually and I think that was a relief to them because there's so much pressure on kids who are 16, 17 and they jump in the car as you're giving them a lift to netball or something and you can't help yourself. You say, oh, do you, do you know what you want to do or what subjects are you doing? And we put all this pressure on them and you know, their brains aren't even fully developed yet so you know, what on earth are we doing? Going off on a bit of
0: a sidetrack rant there. <laughs> no, that, and I think that's going to tie back. So kids these days, they can choose a career, but like I think nowadays, which is probably changed again in the next generation, but so people who are coming into the workforce now, it's something like they'll change career four different times in their time. So you went down this agronomy path. You've touched on very quickly that you then moved down into the corporate side of agriculture as well. So can you share with us a little bit about the, some of those stepping stones that you've taken and, and where you've hit the crossroads and then yeah, what roles you've had in your career?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'll go right back to the very beginning. While I was at uni, my holiday job was like a lot of country kids—you get a job on the local silos in the grain testing station or in the Weybridge. So I was um, working in the grain testing station, sampling grain for four harvests, and that was a great build-in to your career because it was a bit relevant from the sorts of things you've been studying, uh, grain quality and and it was also a great insight into human behaviour under pressure, people coming in, and we had a few harvests that weren't ideal. You know, While I was there, one harvest was a really bad stripe rust and shriveled grain, hot, tight finish, had a couple of wet harvests with sprouted grain and having to do falling numbers and all those things, and farmers there sort of breathing down your neck and not being too happy when the you know, 20-year-old kid tells them that the grain doesn't make the specs. And it also was a great experience in working in a team too. And so I did that when I, I um, finished at the end of 89, did my stint on the silo again and then thought, oh, gee, I, suppose I better start getting organised to get a job. And it was actually pretty tight times, not dissimilar to now, and jobs weren't that free-flowing in the public service and, and things like that. So it took me a while to – took a few months actually to get a real – A proper job and um, got a bit sick of, uh, you know, well-intentioned relatives at Easter saying, have you got a job yet? And I was doing, you know, bits and pieces, casual work and working out on a tomato breeding program, picking tomatoes and squeezing seeds and really good fun stuff like that and supervising some kids planting trees at the Elmore Field Days and just bits and obviously doing work on the farm for Dad and rouseabouting and whatnot. Eventually got my first job and it was in Horsham as what was called a cereal research chemist. So that's cereal as in the cereal you eat, not the cereal killer type.
0: You've clarified that a few times over your career.
1: Yeah, yeah, I have, I have, I have. Uh, and the role of a cereal chemist is to do the research behind the grain quality side of things and I was involved. At that time, noodle wheats were... Um, a growing market, Japan and, and South Korea, and the department had a South Korean PhD student working on noodle quality and the Victorian, they were trying to breed wheats suitable to grow in, in Victoria. The noodle wheats traditionally came from Western Australia and my role was to create some tests that they could use to screen varieties or you know, varieties yet to be released for their noodle quality. And noodle quality is all about starch, about the amount of starch in the grain and the quality of that starch and how basically how sticky, if you put the flour in hot water, how sticky it is. The stickier it is, the better it is for noodle quality and that's what gives you that nice bite in the mouth. So it was a pretty cool job. I got to um, yeah, do some sort of hardcore research, learned how to write research papers, actually managed to publish a couple of papers. Had a really good boss, Joe Pinozzo, who taught me a lot about work ethic and quality of work and the research scene. And, but it was also practical because we were involved in screening all the varieties that are out you know, in the, in the um, what's now called national variety testing Our job was to do all the quality testing on on those varieties as well and then we'd sit down with everybody involved because back then wheat breeding was public. So you'd sit down with the wheat breeders and you'd be going through all the stats. So you'd be going, it's like, you know, picking a footy side. You're going through all their, their yield stats, their root disease stats, their leaf disease stats. and So you might have this variety that's yielded the best in Australia and then it comes to Kate the the cereal chemist, and she goes, nah, you know, it's bread quality is no good or it's it's got this defect in it, that defect, and all these wheat breeders want to kill you because you've just wrecked their baby and tipped (laughs) it out. So it was quite a practical job. Did that couple of years, three years, and still basically I wanted to be outside, and I wanted to be outside with the farmers, but my boss, great supportive boss, recognised this opportunity and that was actually GRDC project by the way so before GRDC existed it was called um, the Wheat Research Council back then. So thanks GRDC for starting my career and (laughs) then they sent me I managed to get a GRDC in-service training grant and at 25 I went to North Dakota State University as a visiting scientist for six months. How cool. Yeah, so again in the lab and what we were doing was comparing techniques that they used for testing pasta quality because they used to do a lot of durum compared to the techniques that I'd been using for for noodle quality. So I hung out as a scientist over there and hung out with all the international students and a few of the locals and um, lived with a 90-year-old lady called Mildred and did that for six months and ironically that period was what? taught me that, no, I could keep going down this path and do a PhD in, say, starch chemistry or starch genetics and end up as a wheat breeder or something like that. But this isn't for me. I, I need to get out of the lab and um, I want to go and get my hands dirty, literally in the dirt. So I came back, knocked back a PhD opportunity, spoke with my boss. He was great and supportive and I stayed in the role I was in And then eventually a teaching role came out out at Longhorn Ag College. No teaching qualifications or teaching experience. And next minute I'm teaching students first year plant production and soil science and agronomy. And how'd that go? Well, I could, um, I think my biggest advantage was that I was only five years older than them. So I knew what they needed and when they needed it. I knew what not to do. And... uh, Basically, I was one page ahead in the book on the theory side of things for the first couple of years. I'd love to go back now and have a go with 30 years under my belt. Yeah. It was a great job out on the farm at Longy. It was also involved in in the farm management decision-making as one of the advisory committee, shared a house with the farm manager
0: Yeah, cool. So it was a very practical role in terms of you're in the classroom but you still actually get to be making some real farm decisions.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it was my first goal at making real farm decisions and helping plan the rotations and, you know, jumping in the uke, going around the sheep after work because that's what we did and it's a really good training ground.
0: How does serial chemist go on to being a teacher to then end up being one of the commercial managers at at Warwick Asset?
1: Yeah, well, I suppose, again, stepping stones, so... Did the teaching role. Decided if I was going to stay in academia, I needed a postgraduate qualification because by that stage, on was governed by Melbourne Uni, and I took on a, a scholarship and actually went on leave without pay. And uh, it was an industry scholarship working on a crop called fenugreek. And basically, what we're looking at fenugreek is a spice crop or a what we'd now call a cover crop back then was called green manure crops. So cover crops have been around a while, you know, 30 years. They're not new, just saying.
0: Just a new buzzword.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. If anyone wants to see my research from 1996, just give me a bell. Did that project and then realised that, again, the academic opportunities were going to be scarce and I always still had this thing about extension and communication and independent. Extension. And by this stage, I'd start to see people that were independent consultants, had my eye on one in particular, and then they ended up advertising while I was still studying. So I jumped on that, went for the job, got it. So I ended up working for John Stutchbury from John Stutchbury and Associates for 12 years. And then it was after that period when um, Warakiri Cropping, who had originally been an asset management company based in Horsham, the uh, investment management was in Melbourne, but the actual operating company was based in in Horsham. They the, by this stage they were in Melbourne, and, and they had identified the need for a commercial manager. And a friend of mine who had worked with me prior and was working for them at the time suggested that um, I should go for that because you know I was looking for the next step again. And at that stage, going into business on my own or going to business with my employers wasn't really going to um, suit what what I needed at the time. And, yeah, we made a big scary decision and went for the job and then ended up um, packing up my country boy and going to Melbourne.
0: How were the, the years with Wurikiri? You guys, Wurikiri started off as a, say, circle what was, 120-odd million investment from a superannuation fund running a diversified portfolio across East Coast and WA.
1: Yeah, so it started actually back in the 90s when I was um, – at Long and on and then on the consulting game, it had pretty humble beginnings. It sort of started off at about a 30 mil fund on, on memory and then it organically grew. And I used to do, through the company I worked for, we used to do the agronomy for some of those farms. So I was quite familiar with them and been over most of their Victorian paddocks. And originally they are all east coast. And 2006, you know, horrendous drought of 2006 and also significant frost, was probably when they realised that East Coast, even though, you know, going from Darling Downs to the Western District, it wasn't diverse enough in terms of managing the geographic and climate risk. So it was when they got a mandate. So they'd grown, by this stage they'd grown to around that 100 mil by 2010-ish, 11-ish, and um, they went back and got a mandate from their investor to double the size of the fund, and when I came on board, they were a third of the way. Yeah, they're on 130 mil. They're a third of the way through expanding. And part of the expansion was to get some more summer cropping. So they expanded into northern New South Wales and get across into Western Australia. And South Australian land prices were out of whack so that South Australian wasn't wasn't um, part of the picture. So that was fun. I was involved in, in identifying some of the properties and then executing once some um, the properties uh, came on board. So Western Australia, they had one when I started and I was involved in acquiring a property at Esperance.
0: From where, from where you said, what were the opportunities that, Warwick itself, but like these corporate farms, what were the opportunities that they were creating for people coming through the farming system?
1: Oh, massive because, you know, we've touched on succession earlier and you know, even today, trad- there's this view that only one or maybe two get um, christened to be the the family farmers, and then what do you do with the other two or three siblings that have a passion for agriculture or the people from outside um, farm families that still have a passion for agriculture? And it's where corporate farming or institutionally owned farms have an enormous role in creating career opportunities and, and pathways, you know, you can start off being a, a boom spray operator, or, or start off working in ad, admin in, in head office and, and work your way through into a management role. I think it's an undervalued service that or role that um, is played by corporate agriculture. And corporate agriculture is sort of demonised in, in some way, in some circles, and unfairly so. In my
0: that decision to leave the corporate role and big city lights. Uh, for your own business, tell me that transition to then step off into think agri and what was the beginning of yeah running your own business at a pretty interesting time.
1: Yeah, well, I guess um, I guess the one thing I learnt when I went to Melbourne and was sort of one of half a dozen people with agricultural background and ag science training, working in a building with thirty or forty people from financial backgrounds, is how valuable the knowledge and experience and the training in critical thinking and logic that I had acquired with science training. And and so it actually grew my confidence to think, oh, I could go and run my own business. I actually probably know more than I thought I knew and have more capacity than perhaps I thought I had. And that's a bit of a female thing to, you know, there's that classic saying, a male and a female read a job application. The male ticks three out of the seven, so he applies for it. The woman ticks seven out of the three and says, oh, I don't have them all and she doesn't apply. And I see that in other women as they come through the ranks. So I had that motivation. We had a desire to shift back to to the country and um, corporate farms and family farms could actually teach each other a lot. And I felt there was a niche there in taking the best of both worlds and putting that together in a framework and using that to launch a service
0: which has taken you down the path of becoming an author, which I think would be awesome to touch on now around your book. So Crops, People, Money and You. You have talked about your passion for people at the very beginning, but why did you write a book, Kate? It's
1: a very good question. Well, I do like to have my say, and I decided that was the most efficient way to do it. When I was at Warakiri, and even prior to that, working with John Stutchbury for 12 years throughout the Wimmera, I always felt there wasn't a decent reference book. For practical farming. There was lots of different little articles. There were books on, you know, permaculture and books on worm farming and academic texts, Agriculture in Australia and the farming game, and books on plant physiology that, you know, cost a year's salary to buy. But there was nothing practical all-in-one book that was easily consumable by a range of audiences, from a uni student to somebody practising in farming or someone wanting to get involved in agriculture. So I wanted to write that book. You know, I wanted to write the Barefoot Investors Bible for farming, basically. And I loved writing and I thought, well, if I don't do it soon, I'll never do it.
0: What role do you reckon lockdowns had in actually seeing this dream become a reality?
1: It helped. It helped uh, created a bit of time. It was already on the cards before lockdown. I actually decided earlier that year that twenty twenty was year of the book, and just when when it happened, it was like well, perfect opportunity, and just got stuck into it.
0: I wanted to touch on a few of the things in the book, so maybe some of they're just part of the everyday conversations we're having in agriculture. So, around we'll probably cover off quite a few things in terms of what were some of the assumptions that you led with to then challenge as part of your writing.
1: Yeah, okay. I guess that's a really good point because that was one of the things that was the motivator for the book. So there's, if I was sitting in an audience, I remember going to Canberra and at the Outlook conference and there was just this assumption that scale was really important and that, you know, you had the reason people weren't making money was because they weren't big enough. So that was one assumption I challenged. The other one was, The assumption that price is everything, and particularly in the financial world and people coming out of financial markets, price is really easy to track. What they didn't realise was that it was actually the human decisions and the range in productivity, whether it's animal productivity or grain productivity, crop productivity, that's where the volatility comes from, and it's not all governed by rainfall. So those were the sort of things I was hearing a lot and thought, we're just on the wrong track here. We've got to get back to what really is driving profit. So they—they they were probably two of the main things that price isn't the most important, and and that scale isn't everything. And so, what were some of the things that or themes that started to come
0: out of it? And and I guess when we're looking at the book, it's not solely just on your own assumptions. You you spent a fair bit of time digging right back into research, but also leveraging. Not just your own commercial experience but also some of these different projects and programs that you've been part of.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that's right. And and I guess I'd been doing that for a few years. So one of the things we used to do at John Stutchburn Associates or JSA we became, used to have an annual update and we'd always have some speakers at that or, or do a few things. And I'd been also... Through the mid-2000s, I'd been thinking about our farming system and what was broken about it, and I was concerned about just continuous use of chemical and continuous use of cropping and watching pests adapt and thinking, well, this isn't quite sustainable. And been noticing there's always some people that just had it and were good at it and was wondering about what it was. So I've been accumulating all this research and about people characteristics, about the financial drivers of farming. So there was reports. GRDC-funded work by Bill Malcolm and Ed Hunt was one source. There was work by University of Western Australia, Ross Kingwell, and um, Western Australian Department of Ag, Plan Farm from Western Australia. So there's all these different reports. But it didn't matter whatever report I looked at and whatever set of numbers, there was always these similar qualitative features and the other important piece of work was a joint study, I think, by JSE and MLA where they interviewed a heap of different consultants and different farmers and, and got their physical data but also did some qualitative work. And this, this theme kept coming through of production, productivity drives profit, not price the individual farm differences are so significant that you can't generalise and that obviously productivity per millimetre per hectare and profit generated per millimetre of rainfall per hectare, they were sort of the critical drivers and and the cost structure of the business as in how much money was spent in in overheads on depreciating assets versus appreciating assets so the, the green or red paint-addicted farms looked like they were really successful on the outset, but when you looked at their numbers, you know, they had a lot of machinery debt. So just this, this scene, crops people money, kept popping up, started while I was at JSA, continued when I was helping write a new strategy for Warakiri cropping and understand their own numbers and their internal benchmarking numbers. and um, it's, this theme, and I thought it's really simple. We're, we're overcomplicating this, so why don't I just write it all down and tell people that it's not rocket science?
0: And so, tell me off of that. What are you say? What is it when it comes to it? The the good people have. Did you work out what it was?
1: Yeah, it see, and it's largely subconscious. It's the ability to do all of those things. Together, It's ability to see the farm as a system and have foresight. So it's about getting the balance right between productivity, what you spend to get that productivity, so cost-effective productivity, but also incredible people skills in terms of self-management and management of other people, so good relationships to get stuff done and a sense of... I guess that's the kicker with crops, people, money and you. The qualitative research showed that those that performed really well took ownership. So it was always their decision and so they were big on responsibility and accountability. They weren't the types to, you know, blame the agronomist or blame the bank manager or blame each other. They took all the good decisions and then all the good advice, but they made their own decisions. So that was the, it was the ability to do all of those things well and, and combine them and that allowed them to be flexible and adaptable.
0: And how do these good farmers balance the, the conundrum we have in food but also farming of emotion and logic? How do they balance that up in their decision making?
1: That's a really good question. I think it's a bit of both and that's probably something I didn't understand as a young agronomist and a young researcher and, and a not so young agronomist and researcher and it's probably something that's only really stuck home since I've been over 50 is that intuition and emotion is part of of the story logic is the other part but no matter how logical something is if they just don't want to do it you can't make them do it so you have to tap into that emotional side as well. And ultimately it's their decision. It's their land. And not everyone wants to do everything the same. And we don't want them to do it the same. So it's up to them.
0: It's an interesting piece, isn't it? Because I feel like when you talk with someone who's passionate about anything, like they you can see it it comes in their eyes, it comes in how they talk, it comes in how they present themselves. I was recently chatting to a mate about he's running a mixed mixed business. So a couple of different enterprises, cropping's what he absolutely bloody loves doing. And he's like, oh just want to do more of it do you feel like these business like when someone feels so strongly about a certain enterprise like is that how do you balance the overall yeah kind of enterprise mix and that thing that you're truly passionate about
1: yeah and I think that's where um got to be self-awareness is really important because we all have these things called confirmation bias so we can convince ourselves to do anything if we really want to But if you're very self-aware, you know that you might be the biased cropper, for example, but you also know that sheep work is a great, sheep are a great risk management tool in this environment, so it certainly makes sense to have them in in the system. And you might use an advisor or use someone else in your family to just keep you honest on on that. Like I I reckon my favourite story on just managing yourself is... um, this farmer, one of my former clients, used to know he was a bit prone to making rash decisions. <laughs> so he'd ring me up when he was in a hurry in the middle of cropping and he'd say, Kate, it says on the label that I need to wait seven days before I can sow the chickpeas after I've sprayed whatever it was. It's five days. I want to sow now. And I know you're going to tell me to go and sow, go off and sow another paddock and come back. What am I doing? You're going off and sowing the other paddock, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> so he was putting things in place to stop him from, um, save him from himself, I guess. Yeah. And on the same. Well, Marshall Goldsmith, the world famous business coach, he has somebody ring him every day to keep him accountable.
0: God, I'm glad someone doesn't do that for me.
1: I know. You know, what's that tell you? He's the most famous coach in the world. He knows himself well enough that he needs someone to say, oh, so how'd you go today? Were you your best self today, Marshall?
0: it would be pretty confronting, I reckon, for some.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I think that's the role of the advisor in a way. And we often talk about the advisor being this technical person and GRSC does some great work in providing technical information for advisors to then distill there's perhaps less awareness about the role of the advisor as the coach and not necessarily knowing the technical stuff but asking the right questions to get the grower to be the best farmer they want to be and the best person they want to be.
0: It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you need to look for the expertise and that's if you're looking for that, then that's probably the advice you should be taking. Whereas, as you're saying, when it comes to that nearly self-discovery and that coaching, it's that how do you prompt the person to then... And it's a real art of leadership to then be able to find within themselves what those answers are and what it is they want to do and be able to justify it. But being able to communicate it is a really key part of business.
1: Yeah, it is. It's interesting that, you know, one of the unrecognised role of the agronomists and quite often stock agents in grazing enterprise is actually that. Don't choose that. They go there because it's their role to go and provide technical advice but the questions that the farmers ask them you know quite often that's the only person they see outside the family you know a lot of farms only go and see the accountant once or twice a year so you could have a 25 year old young guy out of Marcus who's in his you know second year as an agronomist and um and you've got this this farmer asking him questions about succession or asking him questions about the relationship with his dad or all this sort of, I suppose, human stuff, driving around the paddocks and they do talk, they open up in the u. It's a safe space. Imagine some of the conversations you can have there. Yeah, it also comes with a bit of a burden that I don't think agronomists are necessarily supported well enough to handle and to understand their, what their role really is and where the boundaries are. And a lot of agronomists I talk to go home really quite stressed about of the dysfunctional situations that they see.
0: Could be pretty confronting. Tell me, we're what are we, 18, nearly 18 months down post release Yes, yes. What of, now looking back on that whole process and the conversations that the book's instigated, where are you sitting now? What are some of the takeaways and the messages you're actually getting fed back to you?
1: Good question. What, I've um, had some really interesting feedback. The feedback from, there's sort of three categories of feedback, I reckon, that I'm, I'm quite proud of. The first bit is from what I'd call the elders. So these are the people from probably mid-70s to I think the oldest person I've had feedback on is in their early 90s. And they so they're, you know, lifetime farmers and really smart, successful farmers and great people, good family people. And they they've written me little notes and the things like, gee, I wish we had this in the farm office in our day or or, you know, you've done really well distilling down a complex topic into some really good fundamentals here. And one guy said, I wish I had, if I had this in the glove box, I mightn't have sold the farm. So that sort of feedback tells me I've, I've hit a bit of a, you know, a spot. Like if the elders are saying that, it's like, righto, so now we just need those that are in it all the, the interns and and managers coming through the system to... To recognise the value. And then that I've been getting some great feedback from people in the advisory game who sometimes we're, we're a bit of a polite bunch in advisory. And people like see as an organisation are between a rock and a hard place because they don't want to, it's really difficult to put out the cold half truth sometimes. And then the people whose levies you're spending get offended by your message. And one of the beauties about being independent and unencumbered, this stage of my career, I can sort of say it how it is. And so there's a few truth bombs in the book and people in communications in the grains industry reckon I probably got it right. The hardcore messages are there and those things to concentrate on, concentrate on your own farm, don't worry about what's going on over the fence is a pretty important message. So that was great feedback. And then people who are actually in it at the moment People saying to me, well, I normally don't read books, but I picked this up and couldn't put it down. So it's actually written for non-readers because I'm, I'm really impatient and I can't concentrate for more than 10 minutes at a time. So I wrote it the way I'd like to read it. So it's really easy to look at. And, you know, I hope people can challenge themselves. Boys particularly tell themselves or young men tell themselves, oh, I'm not a reader, and so they refuse to even have a go. The audio book is coming. It's actually, I spotted it on um, one of the websites this morning, so. It's here. I was going to say, you're a bit of a natural behind the mic, Kate. Thank you. Thank you. Three days in a recording studio. Evans. Tell me, I've got a few
0: questions I want to wrap up on. Firstly, though, if you had a magic wand and could change one thing in farm businesses, grains businesses, what would it be?
1: Now, this might come as a... um, left fielder, but it would be normalising conversations around mental health and it would be normalising conversations around or getting rid of that uh, identity issue where you have to be a hard worker and it's assumed that unless you, you know, work 20 hours a day, 50 weeks a year, that you're not a good farmer and that everybody else in the world isn't as hardworking as you. I think if we got rid of that, get rid of entitlement, get rid of the thing we have about working hard. You still need to work hard, just work smart, not, you know, don't kill yourself and normalising mental health conversations and do something about it.
0: Be kind to yourself and I reckon those couple of things that you've mentioned, everything's interrelated. There's, there's definitely some. Uh, yeah,
1: judge less and be kind.
0: Kate, let's do a fast five. Uh Your favourite grain-based dish? Ooh, tabbouleh. Who would be three people you'd invite around for your tabbouleh?
1: Peggy O'Neill from the Richmond Footy Club.
0: I'm guessing you're a Richmond supporter? No,
1: I'm a Saints supporter. Really? Barnaby Joyce. Interesting. Can we ask why? Uh, Just so that uh, I can be entertained.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And your third guest? Ollie. Me? Gee, I what you want me to ask some questions. <laughs> Your first job?
1: My very first paid job would have been a about him.
0: Love it. If you had a billboard anywhere for the world to see, what would it say?
1: Judge less, be kind.
0: Love that. And a question you've got for a future guest on this podcast?
1: What's the most important thing in the world to you? Love that.
0: That's good. Case, well, um, I'm going to open the mic to you. We've chatted for a decent chunk of time. Is there anything else that has been left unsaid?
1: Oh, it's been a great chat, Ollie, really good chat. And I just guess in the context of um, the GRDC who are supporting this uh, project and the farmers out there, I, I think it's really don't undervalue the work that your levies do is my message to the growers and don't undervalue the role of the funding bodies to get the projects up, the researchers who do the work, but then the agronomists and the communicators that turn that information into palatable stuff that influences you to perhaps make you a better farmer. It's a, it's a team job.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, everyone. Well, Kate, thank you so much for coming on for a chat. It's been great to kick this off with you.
1: Thanks, ellie It's been uh, a pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grains industry. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode.